0: don't just dwell on the miseries of the present. Consider the blessings of the past and the promises of the future." That's Spurgeon's opening advice in a sermon entitled, No Tears in Heaven, which was preached on Sunday morning, the 6th of August, 1865, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. The text was Revelation 7:17, 7, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's the topic we're considering this week in our latest podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker and this podcast comes to you from Media Gratii. If you'd like to follow along you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or, or at mediagratiorg podcasts where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter with a PDF of the uh, featured sermon for that week. And this is our featured sermon It's Sermon 643 in the sequence. This week we're reading from 640 to 646 and this is our featured sermon, No Tears in Heaven. Spurgeon dives then straight into this text. Do not always be mourning, sighing and complaining concerning the present. He particularly wants us to look to the future and he has four points and they're a little uneven in their uh, Weight in the whole sermon, but he wants to remind us, first of all, that until we reach glory, our eyes will be filled with tears. It is only then that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. He also wants us to remember that God does wipe away tears from his children's eyes now, then all tears, but now also some tears, because God does not change and is still a God of comfort. Then the great heart of the text that he wants to focus upon, that in heaven it is divine love which removes all tears from the glorified and then very briefly to close an inquiry as to whether or not we belong to that happy company of those whose tears are wiped away. It's a really interesting sermon structure in part because Spurgeon's showing his skill once again his god-given and spirit-worked skill at turning a text in various directions the the fact that he begins by Uh, reminding us that if it's only in heaven that God wipes away all tears from our eyes, it infers that there is a a, a weeping that we must endure now. That kind of uh, care in turning the text in various ways is a very good example to preachers of how we can draw out what may seem to be almost incidental ideas which are nevertheless helpful in terms of public ministry. And so under this first heading that tears are to fill the eyes of believers until they enter the promised rest, Spurgeon wants us to remember that there are at least three bottles that are filled with the tears of believers in this present world. The first is a common bottle, the second is a black and foul bottle, and the third is a a sweet and crystal bottle. This common bottle then is the The ordinary receptacle of tears, the lacrimatory he calls it, containing griefs incidental to all men. He simply means that believers, being creatures in a fallen world, suffer and weep in the same way as others do. He gives a number of examples of this. First of all, there's physical pain. The human frame, he says, is capable of a fearful degree of agony and few there be who have not at some time or other watered their couch with tears because of the acuteness of their pains. Then there are the losses and crosses of daily life. You'll have to be living on another planet if you've had no griefs for man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We're all in a world in which there are griefs and distresses, uh, sorrows and... uh, challenges, blighted fields he mentions, bad debts, slandered names, harsh words, sick children, suffering wives. These are the kinds of things that cause us distress. Then death contributes to our woes. The heirs of immortality are often summoned to gather around the tomb. Perhaps you look back over the last year at a friend or a family member who's already been called home and it's left a pang in your soul. Then there are disappointments we face which are just as bitter and keen as any other men. Judas betrays Christ, Ahithophel's a traitor to David. We've had our Ahithophel's and may may yet meet with our Judas. We've trusted in friends and found their friendships fail. The sea of life, he concludes in this section, is salt to all men. Clouds hover over every landscape. We may forget to laugh, but we shall always know how to weep as the saturated fleece must drip, so must the human race, cursed by the fall, weep out its frequent griefs. Christians then share the same distresses as others in this world. But then there's this second bottle, and it's an ugly one, sin, more frequently the mother of sorrow than all the other ills of life put together. And again, he talks about some of the ways that this is manifested. First of all there's a rebellious want of resignation that is a failure to humble ourselves under the chastisements the uh, the griefs that God gives to us for our own good. If we would take the cross as our gracious father gives it says Spurgeon it would not gall our shoulders but since we revolt from it and loathe the burden our soldiers grow raw and sore and the load becomes intolerable. More submission and there would be fewer tears. Then there's wounded, injured pride, when we're uh, angry or upset because uh, we haven't had what we perhaps think is uh, the honour that is due to us. Then there are the tears of unbelief. We manufacture troubles for ourselves by anticipating future ills which may never come, or which, if they do come, may be like the clouds, big with mercy and breaking with blessings on our head. We get supposing that we should do if what we should do if such and such a thing occurred, which God has determined never shall occur. The, the what-ifs, we might say, that sometimes cripple God's people, the, the constant fears about what may yet happen. We imagine ourselves in positions where providence never intends to place us, and so we feel a thousand trials in fearing the one. Unbelief, says Spurgeon, makes a rod for its own back. Distrust of God is its own punishment. It brings a want of rest, a care, a tribulation of spirit into the mind, so much so that he who loves himself and loves pleasure had better seek to walk by faith and not by sight. Then there are the scolding drops of anger against our fellow men, petulance and irritation because we cannot have our own way. The consolations of God, he says, are small with us because we've been seldom in secret prayer. We've lived at a distance from the Most High and we've fallen into a melancholy state of mind. These are the depressed spirits which also give rise to our tears. And he says, There'll never be another tear from our eyes into that bottle when eternal love shall take us up to dwell with Jesus in his kingdom, but now we weep these tears. And then there's the third bottle, this crystal glass into which holy tears may drop, tears of repentance because of our sins. Good Roland Hill, a preacher that Spurgeon loved and esteemed, used to say that repentance was such a sweet companion that the only regret he could have in in going to heaven was in leaving repentance behind him, for he could not shed the tears of repentance there. Oh then, says Spurgeon, to weep for sin, It is so sweet a sorrow that I would a constant weeper be, like a dripping well, my soul would ever drop with grief that I have offended my loving, tender, gracious God. It's an important thought for those who may think that repentance is a necessary evil. Then there are tears for Christ's injured honour, the distress that we feel when we see his name blasphemed or his cause driven back. These are things that we'll no longer need to weep in the glory to come. And then there are tears of sympathy entering into the griefs of others, the sorrows of those who who suffer face, weeping with those who weep. Let us never cease from weeping over sinners as Jesus did over Jerusalem, says Spurgeon. Let us endeavour to snatch the firebrand from the flame and weep when we cannot accomplish our purpose. Now, he says, these three bottles... These three receptacles of tears will always be more or less filled by us as long as we are here. But in heaven the first bottle will not be needed, for the wells of earth's grief will all be dried up, and we shall drink from living fountains of water unsalted by a tear. As for the second, we shall have no depravity in our hearts, and so the black fountain will no longer yield its nauseous stream. And as for the third, there shall be no place among celestial occupations for weeping even of the most holy kind. But until then, we expect to share in human griefs and instead of praying against them, let us ask that they may be sanctified to us. Pray that tribulation may work patience and patience experience and experience the hope which does not make ashamed. We're asking that God would form Christ in us, that the fire may consume the dross, that the floods wash away the defilement. But, he says, remember that even now, God will wipe away some of our tears. We cannot do a better thing than go to God under these circumstances. And here there are just these uh, flashes of insight that he gives. God can remove every vestige of grief from the hearts of his people by granting them complete resignation to his will. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Our selfhood is the root of our sorrow. If self were perfectly conquered, it would be equal to us, whether love ordained, our pain or ease appointed us wealth or poverty. If our will were completely God's will, then pain itself would be attended with pleasure and sorrow would yield us joy for Christ's sake. As one fire puts out another, so the master passion of love to God and complete absorption in his sacred will quenches the fire of human grief and sorrow. Hearty resignation puts so much honey in the cup of gall that the wormwood is forgotten. This is what it means to kiss the rod. This is what it means to bow before God and to acknowledge and understand that his love and wisdom are such that even the worst things that we may experience are things that he has ordained for his glory and our good. And that's a hard thing to do, but, says Spurgeon, It takes away much of the grief and distress of sufferings and sorrows here. Then, building upon that, God takes away tears by constraining our minds to dwell with delight upon the end to which all our trials are working. God can show us that they're working together for good, and so the afflictions become sweet in themselves. He can take every tear from our eye in the time of trial by shedding abroad the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts more plentifully. The love of Christ like a great flood rolls over the most rugged rocks of afflictions so high above them that we may float in perfect peace where others are a total wreck. And then the Lord can take away all present sorrow and grief from us by providentially removing its cause. God can remove the burden. God can spare us the rod. God can clear the air. God can lift the gloom. But, says Spurgeon, The surest method of getting rid of present tears is communion and fellowship with God. When I can creep under the wing of my dear God and nestle close to his bosom, let the world say what it will. Let the devil roar as he pleases, and let my sins accuse and threaten as they may. I am safe, content, happy, peaceful, rejoicing. He quotes a hymn. Let earth against my soul engage, and hellish darts be hurled. Now I can smile at Satan's rage, And face a frowning world. To say, My Father, God, to put myself into his right right into his hand, and feel that I am safe there, to look up to him, though it be with tears in my eyes and feel that he loves me, and then to put my head right into his bosom as the prodigal did and sob my griefs out there into my father's heart, oh, this is the death of grief and the life of all consolation. When your friend cannot wipe away the tear, says the preacher, when you yourself, with your strongest reasonings and your boldest efforts, cannot constrain yourself to resignation, when your heart beats high and seems as if it would burst with grief, Then ye people, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. He is our castle and high tower, our refuge and defense. Only go ye to him, and ye shall find that even here on earth, God shall wipe away all tears from your eyes. So here's this careful experiential balancing now of the life of God's people. Yes, there will be tears on earth, and they're stored up in those three different bottles, the the common one, the dark one and the crystal one. And yet even here, God is pleased by these various modes and means to lift the burden, to soften the blow, to remove something of that grief and distress or to give us particular comforts in it. And that then is where Spurgeon says, bear in mind that there is a removal of all tears that is coming. God doesn't change. And so here in this veil of tears, he wipes away tears. And there in the glory to come, there are many reasons why glorified spirits cannot weep. He just hints at a few. First of all, all outward causes of grief are gone. There is nothing more to distress. There's no more affliction. There's no more uh, persecution. And then all inward evils will have been removed by the perfect sanctification wrought in God's people by the Holy Ghost. So all of those things that might have caused us grief here, evil of heart, unbelief in departing from the living God, we shall not be vexed by those things in paradise. There'll be no suggestions by the arch enemy, no temptations to which we'll be prone or, or which our hearts will rise to. We'll never think in any low or hard way of God. Sin will be obnoxious and abhorrent to us. No lusts of the eye, of the flesh, no pride of life will be snares to us. Sin is entirely shut out and we are forever shut in. And then all fear of change has been shut out. We know that we are eternally secure. Saints on earth are fearful of falling, and some believers even dream of falling away. They think that God will forsake them, that men will persecute and take them. But there's no such fears among the blessed ones who view their father's face. They dwell within a city which cannot fall, bask in a sun which never sets, swim in a flood tide that never ebbs, drink of a river which never dries, pluck fruit from a tree which shall never be withered. This is the glory, the unchangeable and secure glory of the world to come. And then, why should they weep when every desire is gratified? The saints in glory cannot wish for anything which they shall not have. Eye and ear, heart and hand, judgment, imagination, hope, desire, will, every faculty shall be satisfied. All their capacious powers can wish they shall continually enjoy. Though eye has not seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for those that love him, yet we know enough by the revelation of the Spirit to understand that they are supremely blessed. The joy of Christ, which is an infinite fullness of delight, is in them. They bathe themselves in the bottomless, shoreless sea of infinite beatitude. That's the the beauty and the glory that lies ahead. Every desire being Tuned now to the perfections of God, will be entirely satisfied. But, says Spurgeon, this doesn't quite account for the fact that all tears are wiped from their eyes. He says, I like better the text which tells us that God Himself shall do it. And now he's pressing home. Here's a, um, an even more personal touch, if you will. Uh, how is this, you say, that the, the glorified do not weep? Surely it must be a divine operation. Why? Because, says Spurgeon, if it weren't God Himself who is at work, what regrets the saints must have for their past sins. And here he's he's really sort of pulling across these different experiences, the the the, the current state that we're in, then the the intermediate or the glorified state when when we might be looking back. And he says, if if you're made perfectly holy surely you would hate sin above all. And and so what would happen if you came to, to the glory which is to come? Surely the grief and the sorrow and the shame over your sin would give you cause to weep. But no, God wipes away every tear from their eyes. And Spurgeon's trying to answer the question, how does this work? He says, you cannot but regret that you've sinned, but perhaps they now know that sin has been made to glorify God by the overcoming power of almighty grace, that sin's been made to be a black foil, a sort of setting for the sparkling jewel of eternal and sovereign grace. Perhaps that's why we don't shed tears over sins committed. When we sing unto him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood without a tear in their eyes, it must be because God has wiped away those tears, because otherwise surely we'd be weeping. It's a really interesting uh, approach. You've you've kind of got to work your head around it two or three different directions. Again Spurgeon says, the vast expense of shame and woe which the Saviour lavished for our redemption must in the natural order of things be a constant source of grief. Why then are we not weeping in the glory which is to come? Spurgeon says, Uh, that if I was thoroughly spiritualized and in such a holy state as those are in heaven, surely I couldn't look at the lamb without tears in my eyes. And yet by by some glorious method, God wipes away even those tears. Then he says, you might have weep over your wasted opportunities. It's been often and truly said if there could be regrets in heaven, Those regrets would be that we have wasted so many opportunities of honouring Christ on earth, opportunities which will then be passed ever. And so he says, if God were to take me to heaven this morning, if he did not come in and by a special act of his omnipotence dry up that fountain of tears, I should almost forget the glories of paradise in the midst of my own shame, that I have not preached more earnestly, prayed more fervently, laboured more abundantly for Christ. Now Spurgeon is reminding us that God will wipe away those tears but he's doing it in a way that seems to push us back toward living now in the way that we ought to. And so he says there may be more tears in heaven for our mistakes and misrepresentations and unkindnesses towards other Christian brothers. How surprised we shall be to meet in heaven some whom we did not love on earth people who we, we sneered at or were jealous of or uh, suspected. Well, says Spurgeon, I don't know how he'll do it, but God himself is going to so overshadow believers with the abundant bliss of his own self that when you look at those whom you might not have loved and served as you should have done on earth, there will be no tears in your eyes in the glory to come. And then he presses at home with regard to uh, conversion. If you go to heaven and you see your dear children left behind unconverted, would you not weep? And he uses the the illustration of his mother's weeping over him while she was on earth, but saying that if she came to glory and if Charles neglected her pleas and her tears, that she would have to say amen to his condemnation. And Spurgeon did not like that as a child, but it struck home into his heart the thought of a a perfect being looking down from hell as Abraham did and yet feeling no sorrow, thinking of the uh, the rich man and, and Lazarus. And yet, says Spurgeon, in some way God will so refine and purify his saints that while there could still be compassion for suffering, detestation of sin shall so balance it that a state of complete equilibrium shall be attained." perfect acquiescence in the divine will is probably the secret of it he means that when we come to glory we shall so see the honor the majesty the perfections of god that we shall then understand sin as it is and we shall appreciate the 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 righteous judgment against sin in a way that now beggars our understanding and then he says thinking particularly of those who are now in heaven or will shortly be in heaven before the return of Jesus Christ. He suggests that they're, they're very aware of what goes on on earth and different people have a different opinion on that. But he says, surely if they're aware, they must feel deeply grieved when they see the cause of truth imperiled and the kingdom of Christ for a time put back. He says, think of Luther or Wycliffe or Knox as they see the advances of popery just now. Think of men who fought those battles and saw their own triumphs and are now seeing the, the ground being recovered by the forces of error and wickedness. He says, what would they do? Well, the only way that they'll be able to keep from weeping is if they know that the victory will come, anticipating so much the more splendid a triumph because of its delay. They know that although it may look now as if things are on the back foot. Uh, The more, says Spurgeon then, that, that I like them, long for the coming of Christ, long to see his kingdom extended, the more I shall now weep when things go wrong. But when I come to glory, God himself will wipe even away those tears from my eyes. And then just a brief indication why it says that God does it. It strikes me, he says that these causes of tears could not be removed by an angel, could not be taken away by any form of spiritual enjoyment apart from the direct interposition of Almighty God. God himself must do it. I think that gives us a window into Spurgeon's depth of feeling. He's, He's so engaged in the truth of God, so moved by its effects in the hearts of men, so taken up with the cause of Jesus Christ that he can barely imagine not being moved to tears over those things even in heaven itself were it not for the fact that God himself has ways and means of wiping the tears from the eyes of his people. Now that gives you some sense of Spurgeon's depth of feeling, the depth of engagement in the work of the kingdom of God that that he can argue like this that this seems to him to be the the natural train of thought for such a text as this and so he concludes shall we be among this happy company here is the question and the context enables us to answer it they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb here's their character therefore are they before the throne of god The blood is a sacred argument for their being there, the precious blood. They have washed their robes. They are clean. Spurgeon says it's the mark of a Christian, that he not only goes to Christ to wash away his black sins, but to wash his duties too. I would not pray a prayer unwashed with Jesus' blood. I would not like a hymn I have sung to go up to heaven, except it had first been bathed in blood. If I would desire to be clothed with zeal as with a cloak, yet I must wash the cloak in blood though I would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and wear imparted righteousness as a raiment of needlework, yet I must wash even that in blood. And so he's asking, are you washed in the blood of Christ? That is, have you trusted in the atoning sacrifice? These are the ones whose tears God will wipe away. In measure, here upon earth, though we suffer with others, though we struggle and sorrow over sin, and though we weep because of the cause of Christ. When we come to heaven, every tear shall be wiped away, and even the most natural tears of a true child of God here upon earth will be wiped away in the glory to come. There will be no place for them. And you and I, if we trust in in Christ's saving merits, we shall come to that happiness above by a simple confidence in the divine work of the Redeemer to whom shall be the praise eternally. It is, as I've said, a a striking sermon in many respects. The, The approach is inventive and engaging, but it's also effective. He's turning the text, he's turning its applications in various directions to different kinds of hearers, to a variety of uses. And in so doing, he shows us a glimpse of a heart that yearns for the glory of God in Christ on earth as he will in heaven and that can barely imagine that outside of God's immediate operations upon his soul in glory that he would no longer weep over things that make us weep here and so there's plenty for us to take away there are challenges to us with regard to what we weep over and how we weep and even if we weep over the right things here and there's also that glorious prospect that though there may be present sorrows, yet there have been past mercies and there will be future blessings of such a kind that God will indeed wipe every tear from our eyes. If you're able, do join us again next time, God willing, to look at our uh, next featured sermon. Next week's readings are sermons 647 to 653 and it's 653, which is our featured sermon. It's called a blow for Puseyism, and if that leaves you wondering what in the world Puseyism is, then I hope that you will, God willing, come back with me next time in order to learn a little more, not just about what it was, but about the underlying principles with which we still have to deal. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. Wipe away tears now until he wipes away all tears in the glory to come. Thank you for listening.